Hey everyone, this is Ben dropping you a quick note. Our editors have been working hard to get episodes released on time for the scheduled reading of the week. Unfortunately, this hasn't always been possible. We made the decision to release this episode with minimal editing rather than release it late. Our hope is that listeners will have the chance to engage with the content and share meaningful ideas in their circles of friends, family, and church. We're looking for additional volunteers to help with editing the podcast in time to get them released. The time commitment may vary from four to six hours per week. If you would like to help, send us a message on our Facebook page at Latter-day Peace Studies or email us at latterdaypeacestudies at gmail.com. We are also openly asking for donations to help cover the costs of producing the podcast. You can donate through PayPal by going to our website, latterdaypeacestudies.org, and clicking on Get Involved, then scrolling down to the donate box. Thank you to all who have helped out over the years and donated to the project. We are sincerely grateful. Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me. I am your host, Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. It's good to have you with me, Ben. It's good to be back in the saddle again. Still uh, yeah. suffering pain from from a back injury, but getting my butt in the chair anyway to to hit record with you for an hour. I don't think we've really mentioned that you've been dealing with some back pain no. these past couple episodes. No, we haven't. I've managed. I've leaned on you, Ben. <laughs> so this week we're going to talk about not two books, but one book in its entirety and part of another book. So we're going to talk about Ruth and we're going to talk about First Samuel chapters 1 through 7. And we'll pick up the rest of Samuel in future episodes, one or two future episodes. So the book of Ruth is not usually, well, it's not found in this part of the Bible in the Hebrew Bible, right? Here we're, we're talking about the yeah. Hebrew Bible, but we're talking about it as Christians. I just thought I'd start with that, pointing out that this is over in the writings, not, yeah. in, the, not in the prophets, right? We finished the, the Torah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, we finished the Torah. And so that's the, the Pentateuch. That's the first part of the Bible. Then there's the prophets and then there's the writings. And so, but in this, in, in our Bible, right? And in, in this Bible, the one we call the Bible, you have this book at this point. Why Ben? So at the beginning of book of Ruth, we get this statement in the days when the judges ruled. And so chronologically, it makes sense to throw Ruth in here because it's like, hey, this story happened during these judges times. It also makes sense because the book of Kings that's coming next is all the precursor that it's explaining how David became king. And Ruth is one of the stories of that, of his ancestral origins. And so it makes sense to put it here in the broader narrative, both historically and literarily and rhetorically. It does. Yeah, it does make sense. And so regardless of when it was written, it's inserted at this point 
into what we call the Bible, where the redactors are making this look like one continual story. And of course, we have some differences once in a while as we were either different versions of the story and they weren't about to go, you know, throw away one and keep the other. They kept it all. They realized that, that there are contradictions. They knew that they would, that their tradition would make it a point to argue about these finer points. And not to have the one only true and correct answer, but to have a multiplicity of possible answers and something to talk about, right? And engaging with the text. So with Ruth, we have this story that is a story of a foreigner, of a stranger, as the King James Bible calls her. When I remember when Ben, when the when we were having Syrian refugees come to Utah, and there were people among our co-religionists actually who who would not welcome them. I remember making my own translation of "When saw we the stranger?" So you know to put it in the proper context, a stranger is a foreigner. When when saw we the a foreigner and took thee in? And people were concerned about how many refugees were coming to Utah without the knowledge that there have been refugees coming to Utah for decades in the same numbers. Centuries in one sense, right? I mean, if, you know, the narrative of the the Latter-day Saints is that they were refugees, right? That's true. Yeah, that's true. I mean, for decades, we've had refugees coming in from other countries run by Catholic Relief Services for for the government and and headed up by a Muslim, by the way, who, mm-hmm. who works for Catholic Relief Services. And so that's just a fact of life in Utah, and that's been going on for a long time. But, you know, there was this xenophobia, right? This this fear of foreigners or strangers in the land. And so that's what we have here is a story of a stranger, of a foreigner. And another story in some sense, like uh, Tamar's, I think we'll bring out, Mm-hmm. A story like Sarah's and Rachel's. There's some reprises there, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. There are themes that we see repeated in the Bible. And in this case, there are there are some key themes that show up in this story. And rightly so, because this is a story of, of one of the uh, matriarchs of the Davidic line. So let's get into Ruth. Let's talk about Ruth and, and we'll summarize um, those seven chapters of First Samuel when we get to them. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about the book of Ruth and when we get to it, we start reading in it. We're like, wow, this is a completely different feel, right? From what we've been doing for quite a while now, Christopher. And so Ruth is like, it's like this really welcome respite from all the violence and what we might sometimes call the problematic theology of these books that we've been dealing with for a while. It's a love story in a sense, but not just love in a romantic sense or not even really love in a romantic sense. It's uh, love in a, in a different sense. We're going to talk about the word chesed and how that kind of applies in this situation and, and how it's used in the Old Testament. It's translated in some different ways sometimes, and and but it's a difficult word to translate, but it's it's a special word and it really brings out a lot of the context of what's happening in this book here. Sometimes it's translated as loving kindness, which which for yeah. me has Buddhist overtones, but yeah. of course. But so but let's go back to something you said real quick, Ben. You know, last time in the book of Joshua, we saw a lot of, you know, there was the claim in the book of Judges that that there was a, a Canaanite conquest, right? And that everything is under Israelite hegemony. And then in the next book, in the book of uh, Joshua, we get 
Well, not really. There are still Canaanites we're struggling against. There are other manners of ites we're struggling against. You have people from the inside. You have people from the outside. The Philistines come along. They're part of the story uh, of 1 Samuel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll talk a bit about that. They're also challenging Canaanite hegemony. And so you get this, what you called problematic theology, what I'm going to call, along with John Dominic Crossan, bad theology. Bad theology. Bad the <laughs> Let's just call it what it is, bad theology. So this is how the bad theology goes. Although we are sitting in the crosshairs of empire on one of the most desired pieces of, you know, earth on planet earth, you know. Strategically significant. Right? Strategically significant, commercially significant, yeah. So even though we're in this place, we're being attacked from all sides, not because we're in this place, but because God is angry with us. Yeah. God is doing this to us because we have failed to be moral or what what have you. And so this is just bad theology, right? If you're in this place, and, and I refer the, the listener again to what used to be a flash application, one of the few flash applications I ever saw that was worth flash. Some of the stuff people did with flash was just... But this was, this was recorded by some people as maybe screenshots or screen uh, recordings. And you can find on YouTube, Maps of War, Middle East. That should do it. Maps of War, Middle East. And just watch the, the empires that have come and gone that have been, you know, taken over that part of the world right, over the course of the centuries and millennia. Yeah, I, that gives us sort of another point to consider as we think about the books of Joshua and Judges and as we're going into Samuel as well. You know, a lot of the things that are going on here in the book of Ruth kind of lay the groundwork again, as we were, we were talking about with Judges. This is a, a another piece to the groundwork, so to speak, of presenting the Davidic line. So there's a lot of elements here in this that legitimize that. Ruth is the great-grandmother of David, but there's sort of a paradoxical thing going on here because she is, as you mentioned, Christopher, a stranger. She's a foreigner. And to have a foreigner be a principal ancestor of the king, you might think this is sort of problematic. So like I said, there's a paradoxical thing going on here. She is at the heart of of this tradition, but she's a stranger. And how that comes about is, you know, really, really interesting for the story. Yeah, not only that, not only is she a stranger, but she's a Moabite. Yep. And it's not permitted for anyone among the Israelites to marry her because she's a Moabite. She cannot be part of the community, which happens by marriage. Right. Explicitly, it's stated that Moabites cannot. What happens later is it becomes reinterpreted that Oh, it doesn't mean Moabites in general. It means just the men. The women aren't part of that exclusion. And this actually becomes like a like a rule about Torah that says it doesn't include, you know, when it says Moabites, it's just referring to men, not to women. And so that's how Ruth then gets incorporated into the, the tradition as not being legally excluded. Oh, and you'd have to, right? You'd have to do something like that. It's it's interesting to see, you know, all of the women in the Bible who are in some sense transgressing boundaries, right? And this is how this is how the how the whole story actually moves forward. I mean, without them and without these transgressions, 
it doesn't. From from Eve down through Sarah, Rachel, and and you know Tamar, and now Ruth, and and you know moving forward, you know with with other there there will be other examples as well of where these women, who are, are sometimes women of ill repute, or or, or at least uh, or, or in, uh, in other cases, you know impersonating uh, women of ill repute, and and they're the ones moving the story forward. Isn't that interesting? It definitely is. You know, you said something, Christopher, that is, I think, a really key point. This is this motif that continues to come back, come up in the Bible, and that's that of women transgressing boundaries, starting with Eve, right? <laughs> and you get to this point where Ruth is, she's actually crossing into a land that's not hers, a people that's not hers, a God that's not hers. And then she goes in to Boaz, right? She's sort of transgressing this boundary, being much more forward than might be traditionally accepted. And so there's all these sorts of boundaries being crossed. In fact, the the whole we'll get this we'll get to this in, in a minute. There's there's more about Ruth that's this transgressing boundaries, right? So I think that is a very, very important point to bring up. Isn't she sitting in some sense in a gray area with Boaz at midnight? Because on the one hand, if she would be a prostitute, this would be maybe the way to do it, right? To show up in this way. But if she's, but she's already been identified and, you know, given a special status by Boaz, right? And so that's, so she's, she's actually known. And so she's somewhere in between those. She has been given the special status. It's only hers because he gave it to her. Can she show up in this way? Can she not? She shows up. It's ambiguous. You see what I mean? Yeah. She is the unknown woman, right? That's something about this as well, because she gets asked by Boaz, even after she, he knows who she is, right? Who are you? And, and then this comes up again with Naomi, and it's translated two different ways. But the idea is that after these things happen to her, Naomi then asks Ruth, who are you or, or what's changed about you, right? So Ruth is, is somehow this, this person that's able to transgress those boundaries and change and, and adapt to the situation in a dynamic way. And, and this is what is, for lack of a better term, virtuous about her or good or beautiful about her. You know, there's, there's something very fascinating about this story in, in what it doesn't say. And there's a conspicuous absence of mentioning that Ruth was beautiful. And this basically implies that she wasn't. Otherwise, she, it would be mentioned that she is. It's a it's a trope. I mean, every woman mentioned in the Bible is beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. Except for Ruth. Yeah, and but the I think the idea here is that she she's beautiful because of all these other qualities, right? Even though it's not mentioned there, so her words are beautiful. Her kindness, her you know, chesed, her grace, all of these things make her this worthy woman. You know, like I think you're going to talk about a little bit more. I should mention before we get uh, farther with this that we're going to bring in some of the commentary from Aviva Zornberg. If listeners will remember, we referenced her a bunch when we did Numbers and Deuteronomy. 
She has some more content commentary on the book of Ruth. That's just, it'll blow your mind. (laughs) It's really, really good stuff. And so you should go look her up on this. And so we're going to bring in a few things of that, but we, we cannot, because of the way that Aviva gets into the depths of this, there's no way we can follow her into that for the podcast. So we're only going to touch on a few things that she talks about. And otherwise I would just highly recommend that people go and, and check that out. Yeah. She takes more time just to talk about Ruth than we have to talk about Ruth in the first seven chapters of Samuel. But you know, part of the reason why we can't just go into it faster, you know, as you were pointing out, Ben, that she sort of takes you step by step, right? And she's giving you, you know, Midrash from rabbinical and Hasidic tradition. She's giving you psychological insights, you know, Freudian psychological insights, philosophical insights. And she just takes you, you know, layer after layer after layer, deeper and deeper into the onion. And that takes time. It takes time. So I do recommend to the listener to, to hear what she has to say about the book of Ruth. So the first intimation we get of Ruth's character here at the beginning is in the narrative of the story. There's, there's a famine in the land. And so Naomi and her husband leave Bethlehem because there's a famine in the land. They go to Moab. And then her sons marry Moabite daughters, Moabite women. And then they all die. All the men die. And so they're going to return back or Naomi's going to return back. And her two daughters-in-law that are widows also now are going to go with her. And Naomi says, no, you should go back to yours. So one of them does. And the other one is Ruth. And she says, no, I'm going to stay with you. And so here's where we start getting some things about the character of Ruth that we talked about, how she is willing to transgress those boundaries. And she really exhibits this, this idea of, of chesed. And, and I, there's a lot of words that sort of, this sort of evokes, and it could be translated different ways. It's, it's, it's love or loving kindness. It's loyalty. It's grace. It's, it's the kind of love that God has for his people within the covenant So it's also the kind of love that might exist in an ideal marriage. And so there's all of these concepts wrapped up in this here. And Ruth is exhibiting this. There's even courage. Yes, courage is a really important part as well of that. And and Ruth is exhibiting all this. And then the first time that we see it is when she, it says that the first daughter-in-law, she kisses Naomi, but Ruth clings to her. Yeah. Ruth clung to her. And this is the same verb that's used when in Genesis, it talks about a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. Right. And so this is the blurring or elimination of boundaries between the two, because it says they shall be one. And what it does is it uses this to refer to Ruth and Naomi. Now, you know, there's not a, there's not like a, marriage going on here in that sense, but there is a a marriage going on in the sense that they have an affinity for each other. And they later in the story, we see that there is sort of some interchangeability between the characters when Ruth gives birth, right? The child becomes Naomi's in a sense, almost like adopted. And so there's this, there's this affinity that happens between Ruth and Naomi and they almost become one in that sense. Ruth does what Naomi tells her to do and kind of becomes a sort of a surrogate um, for her 
experience in that way. Yeah, and Orpa is true to her name. You know, the, each of the names in this story has a meaning to it that if you look at the meaning of the names, it, it says something about the story. It just shows, you know, the names are according to the roles of the people, not, not who they are, but what they, what they do, something like that. And so her name means shows the back of the neck, right? So she's the one who actually just walks away. Yeah, and Ruth has something to do with filling or or quenching, right? And so there's this sense in which Naomi says, there's a part where Naomi says, you know, I was brought in full and left empty, right? This is part of her mourning process. And and Ruth is in a sense the one that kind of fills that that void for Naomi and and is that that loyalty or that loyal friend is not the right term but just companion right you know Christopher I was surprised earlier we were you and I were chatting and you were reading some of the Robert Alter translations of poetry and I then asked you to go oh well what about Ruth's poem and you're like well it's, it's not a poem you know it's not written in poetic verse but to me it's always been poetic and and I actually like the the King James translation of what Ruth says to Naomi when Naomi tells her to leave. I it just I've heard it a lot more, so maybe it just feels more beautiful to me. So here's what Ruth says when Naomi tells her to leave. She says, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest I will go, and where thou lodgest I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Beautiful. So again, we have this affinity between these two, right? And this comes up later in the story between Ruth and and Boaz, that there's some sort of affinity going on here, some sort of, Zornberg talks about this, an intimacy that's not yet personal because there's not a personal relationship, but there is a level of, of intimacy and understanding and affinity between these people that is the basis or that predates the the personal relationship that comes later. Yeah, so, you know, the, the meaning of Ruth's name it can be friend or companion, which is she is to, to Naomi, right? Naomi, her name means pleasant, but there comes a point later on where she wants to be called something else, right? She wants to be called bitter. bitter. Even the the names of Malon and Chilean means sickness and spent. Oh, interesting. Again, Orpa, back of the neck. So, and then of course we have Elimelech, which reminds me, I remember there's a, a character in the Old Testament in King James Bible called Hamalek. Do you remember him? Yes. Yeah, so Hamalek isn't a name. And and this is something that hasn't come up in a while. We talked about this a lot when we're, we're going through the Torah, right? But a lot of times, these aren't names, they're titles, right? Hamalek just means the king. Yeah. And here you have, uh, what is it? Elimelech, which is, you know, my God is king. Yes. And then Boaz, who means, uh, whose name means in him is strength, right? He's the one and because Naomi and Ruth have a problem, and that is that they have no husband, so they have no standing in society. 
her property, Naomi's property, has already either been sold off or is going to be sold off and, and at auction. And the question is, what happens to the women? And this is something that, that Ruth sets out to solve f- as a friend for both herself and for Naomi. And it's a beautiful story. Yeah. So we have her going into the fields and gleaning. What this is, is they go through and they cut down all of the the grain and, and do it. But there's inevitably stuff that just kind of falls. And the the law given by Moses says that if if things just fall out, you're not supposed to go and gather all that up. If it if it falls out while you're gathering grain, you leave it on the ground because that is for the poor to go through and pick up all of that stuff to glean the field. And so Ruth is out doing this demonstration, you know, the fact that these are, they're in poverty, they're the poor. And she gets noticed by Boaz. And so Naomi says, oh, you were noticed by him. That means you need to start taking initiative. You need to go. And he he is a kinsman. And so there is a an appropriateness to a relationship that can happen. And so we need to make this happen. So they become proactive in this sense. And Naomi tells Ruth to to go in at night where he's asleep in the barn and that way she can persuade him to have this relationship with her. Now, there's there's an interesting point here in it where there is a term used and it is to uncover his feet. It says you go in and, and uncover his feet. And all of the commentary that I checked out, I, I looked at three or four different sources on this and only one specifically addressed the issue of this phrase being a euphemism right because if if you uncover someone's feet or you uncover their nakedness that was a little more explicit these are euphemisms typically for sexual relations and the but the commentary uh, in the oxford specifically said oh this is this euphemism, you know, may mean that at times, but it doesn't mean it in this case. <laughs> well, didn't it say nothing happened as if we could know that? Yeah, it the says, text, yeah. Nothing explicit happened. Well, of course, nothing explicit happened. That just means it wasn't spelled out. Yeah. So, but what's not, what's not explicit here? What's implicit? What's implied in the text? So implied in the text here would be that this is the moment when Ruth goes in to Boaz and... She does similar to what maybe Tamar did, right? And she uses her power as a woman to seduce is not the right word, uh, I think, in this scenario necessarily. But what she does is she she is able to catch Boaz in a moment and... I think the implication here is that there is sexual relation. And then after the fact, Boaz is stuck with having to say, okay, this, I'm going to accept this and we're going to call this a marriage, right? Or is he going to treat her as a, as a, again, she's sort of in this, he's made her, you know, he's given her this special status. How far will he go with it? And I think that has to be the question on, on her mind right yeah he's he has counted her as a worthy woman 
at some point here. He sees her hard work. This kind of harkens back to Rebecca and Rachel as being hard workers, right? And so she is, you know, a, a worthy woman in sense of appropriate for to be a wife. Christopher, you were talking about how worthy might have a little bit different connotation in in this context. Well, you know, I was I was just noticing that worthy was in in Boaz, it's equated with being rich. Yeah, you, you've mentioned what it took for for you know for Ruth to be or sorry for, yeah for Ruth to be considered worthy, but what about what about Boaz? It's just it looks like worthiness equals riches. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So I it's, I just think it's one of these words that we need to think about in terms of it's one of these words that's loaded you know with so much baggage when we say worthy. And maybe we need to have a better understanding of what this word means, where it comes from. You know, this is the kind of thing where, you know, for example, when it comes to those who read King James Bible, I say, go read what the Noah Webster 1828 dictionary has to say about this, right? Because words change meaning over time. And the um, the English that Webster based his work on is this King James English, right? That, that we get in the Bible. It's he He really uses the Bible as one of his main sources for this dictionary. And so that's one way. Another way is to do word studies. You know, Ben, just before we started recording, we did a quick lookup. You just type in Google, put in the, you know, chapter, book, chapter, verse, and then add interlinear. And you can now pull up from Bible Hub, usually is what comes up on top. You can get an interlinear, you know, English with the either the Greek or, you know, from the Septuagint or from the Hebrew, from the Masoretic text. And you can actually click and go to the Strong's, which is a concordance of every word in the Bible, and get the meanings. And you had a sense, Ben, that in one of the in, in one of these other stories that we're going to go into, Hannah's story, that there was something that that this rival was it? Yeah, rival or adversary. Yeah, yeah. That this had to be a, a rival wife, right? And and you found support in that in, in one of the definitions and going through the Strong's concordance by actually going through this process. So we can do these word studies. And we can t- continue to talk about these things. This is probably something Riley and I should bring up on a Latter-day Contemplation episode. In fact, we have, haven't we? we we've said you're always already worthy, right? And you just you have to become aware of it, right? So the realization is the becoming. Yeah. I think in one sense, there's going to be some semantics here because the context of the use of the word might be appropriate to to different, you know, usages. Absolutely. You know, in this sense, we're not talking about like a moral worthiness. We're more talking about like if she's worthy, it's more appropriateness to his station. Right. You know, it's like he's he's a wealthy man. And that's his station. Yeah. And so that's his worthiness. Yeah, that's his station. And so, you know, Ruth is not. She's yeah. poor. And so for him to deem her worthy right this is a this is a declaration it did bring out in me the thought as i as i started thinking it through that actually this entire book of ruth is could be analogous to the history of the israelites you know they they come out of their land because of a famine and then they they kind of lose their god so to speak in egypt right they don't have it anymore. And that's analogous to Naomi and uh, losing her husband and sons, 
and and so then they're going to return back to their land. Oh, we didn't talk about this idea yet of of returning. You know, Ruth says, "I will return with you," but Ruth has never been there, and so the word "return" is is it seems like it might be an inappropriate word to use for Ruth because she's never been there. But what she's doing is she's appropriating that identity of Naomi as taking it as her own, just as she says, you know, your people will be my people, your God, my God. And so she's in a sense returning to her land, even though she's never been there before. This is actually kind of a Middle East thing. I, I remember, I mean, maybe it's more than a Middle East thing, but it's at least a Middle East thing. I remember when I was living in Jordan for a time, and, you know, I'd take, I'd take taxis every once in a while. And many, many of the taxi drivers were, were Palestinians. And, you know, more often than not, I'd be talking with them. We'd talk about where we're from. They'd say that where they were from, and it would be some little town, you know, in Palestine somewhere. And, you know, I'd be like, well, what was the last time you were there? And he's like, I've never been there. <laughs> you know, I was like, what? It's like, no, I've never been there. Like ever in your life? No. Never been there, but that's where I'm from, right? Born and raised in Jordan in exile, right? How can you be from somewhere when you've never been there? And but that that's their land, right? And so I thought that was kind of interesting in this context that you know, Ruth, she she appropriates that identity and becomes part of that. You brought out something else for me, Ben. I hadn't seen this before, you know. You were saying that this wasn't a romantic story, but now it turns out it compares in some sense to Romeo and Juliet. Which isn't necessarily romantic, but it, let's let's go into this a little bit. You you pointed out that that the the coming together of this of this couple, which is what's happening, right? It requires some sort of you know some kind of equalization, right? Again, th- does he have to stoop to another level, or does she come up to his level? And that's in fact what happens, right? She he's worthy for his riches; she's worthy for her virtue or her virtues, I should say. Yeah. And so it looks like in the beginning though, before this, this happens, they're like Romeo and Juliet, right? They just, they are from different strata of society or from different families. And, and, you know, they cannot, they cannot come together in that way. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, that could be, I think in the story, there's not a conflict there though. Like it's, it's resolved by the fact that, you know, again, that Ruth, has this affinity almost, you know, identified so closely with, with Naomi, you know, in, in the idea that the story is analogous to Israelite history, as she's coming back into the land, she, she then pursues this husband who is analogous to a relationship with God. In fact, that's, that's sort of how, how it's termed or, or the metaphor that's drawn throughout the, the Old Testament is that the the people are the bride and and God is the groom, right? Or or at least that they're the covenant that's wanting to be made is analogous to a marriage covenant. And so we could see here in the book of Ruth how when she's coming in and and Boaz is going to be her new husband, this is almost like the Israelite people coming into their land and coming to know their God in a sense. So anyway, I, I kind of see that. Yeah, there's something else that occurs to me that, you know, what I said, maybe really, I should say this, you know, he is related in some sense to Naomi. He's related to Naomi. Yeah. 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 So the story tells us that Ruth happened by chance 
to be gleaning in his field. She could have been gleaning somewhere else, right? Just yeah. by chance. And so there's there's this hint of divine providence, right? That she ends up at Naomi's family. And so when he finds out who she is and how she's related to Naomi, he does feel kick in that sense of, I am the one in this family. Although there there, there appears to be another one who has a previous claim or to the right slash responsibility of taking care of of these women, perhaps. That's, again, a question mark, too, because do they just get the land or do they, do, are they going to take care of the women that they're taking the land from? Yeah, and then when they find out, oh, there's women attached to this, they're like, I, we can't do that, so they pass it on. It was, it was basically a, a token gesture for them to do it because they knew that that they wouldn't accept ultimately, and so it could, so then it could legitimately pass. The claim could legitimately pass to Boaz. That was like the whole idea. It almost seems like a ploy on, on sure. Boaz's part for to, sure to get the girl. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to go back to the the moment in the. In the the granary, is it the granary? The witching hour. Yeah. So it says that 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 she goes in around midnight, right, and and uncovers his feet. I, even though the commentaries aren't on this, and and I'm not trying to put my authority above their stuff, I just think that they're hesitant to to ascribe or to to really accept the euphemism because there's maybe a desire to impose a a more modern morality upon the story whereas the cultural context of it didn't didn't moralize this like there there wasn't anything within their cultural context that made this relation that's happening immoral because they were both eligible to be married and it was appropriate that they should be because of the family situation and they both had that intention. I mean, particularly Ruth did, right? This was the intention from the outset. And then they, so the, the relation that happens there is, anal- is, is basically the analogous to the actual marriage happening. There may be some formalization that happens afterwards, but there's no, there's no what we would call fornication going on here because this is a, this is a legitimate relationship that is coming into being. Yeah, so about biblical marriage, Ben. Yeah, about biblical marriage. You know, we're going to get that into that a little bit with the the next Samuel. I, I I think that that is something that you know reasonably challenged for people, at least with their idea of how they define marriage by saying that it's biblical marriage. Right? You might use some other way of of approaching it, but at least using the term biblical marriage, it it, it just the pattern isn't typically one man and one woman, right? It's, yeah. It's not that typically in, in here. And then there's fornication and, and prostitution and whatnot. And so what we might call that. Right. What we would call fornication exactly. With yeah. our modern moral imposition. Our biblical marriage, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I'm not sure that the Bible again is is teaching morality. I I know this is something I've I've said before, but I'm pretty sure it's not teaching about marriage in the way that that we seem to think it is. It's the same with morality, I guess. I think it, it goes hand in hand. Right? There are just certain things that happen in this text that just don't go with the way we do things, and, and yet our way is supposed to come from it, and that makes no sense because it's not like it. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> and I think this is where, again, the definition of Scripture as 
not a text itself, not what the text says, but what we say the text says. Yeah, and our relationship with it. Sure. And our relationship with it and with the, the, the community of believers in that text. How we negotiate meaning out of the text. Yeah. Right. So I think we can say that in that sense, that our idea of marriage is scriptural. That's different. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Zornberg goes into this concept of it being at midnight quite a bit. And so I really, really highly recommend that people go and listen to what she has to say about this concept of midnight. She pulls in David, she pulls in Solomon. It 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 just it gets way farther down the path and deeper than I think we can really go into here. Suffice it to say yeah. there's a lot to it. And I think one of the the really uh, fascinating things about it is just okay this is at midnight this is the quote-unquote darkest time of the night right this is a moment of of chaos right of of metaphorical chaos in the world this is you know the the evening and the morning were were the second day creation right the creation starts at night right it doesn't start in the day it starts at night and so this is a this is a moment of creation. In fact, there's there's like midrash that goes into stuff about David and wind coming and blowing the strings. And it's like when I heard that, I was like, wind, you know, that's creation. That's the breath of God. That's ruach, right? That's that's the spirit. And so we have this moment at midnight when um, Boaz and Ruth meet, and. This is the other reason that I think we really are talking about a, a, a euphemism with uncovering the feet here about a, a relationship, a sexual relationship that happens here, because this is a moment of creation, right? This is the inception and then conception of the line that brings about David. And it just seems so appropriate to the overall arching narrative of what's going on here for this to be the case, even though, you know, maybe the authors didn't mean that. Maybe that's not even really literally what happened. There does seem to be a subtext to that, that, that would make this moment, at least literarily and rhetorically, a moment when the inception and then literal conception of the line begins. And that's where the story is going, right? This is, this is all about it's Ruth all about David. giving yeah. us David. Yeah. yeah. So we could go on and on about the book of Ruth. And yet. Yes, we could. <laughs> we cannot. We must yeah. go into Samuel. First Samuel chapters one through seven. Yeah. Show must go on. Will you give us a, an overview of those seven chapters of first Samuel, Ben? Okay. So <clears throat> the idea here is we're going to talk about how Samuel came about. Hannah, who is a woman without child and we get some motifs there you know continuing and, and reoccurring all over in in the bible and then the the life of samuel how he comes to be a prophet contrasts him with the you know the status quo which is eli and eli's sons there's a lot of problems there we get the story of the ark of the covenant which the people lose you know it's stolen in battle and then ends up destroying cities or gods that it's taken to oh isn't that when indiana jones isn't that when the nazis open it up and then indiana jones gets it back <laughs> yes they just made a movie right out of these exactly yes <laughs> no. 
And then we have Samuel, we're leading up to Samuel chapter eight, which is, you know, we're going to talk about this next time. This is when the, we get the inception of the, the kingship, the monarchy. And so this is all the building up of, of the character of Samuel, who he is, what his mission is going to be. He's a transitionary character. Um, he's a prophet, he's a priest, and he's a judge. And this is all precursor to a king. And, and we have this phrase, you know, in, in our hymns, it's, I know that my redeemer, we have this phrase prophet, priest, and king, right? This is a messianic phrase referring to Jesus, but, but Samuel is sort of the prototypical prophet, priest, king. He's not a king, but he's a king maker, right? He's the one that anoints. He's not the anointed. He's the one that anoints. So he's a very interesting character in again the movement from this chaotic judges time into this ordered monarchical time and and he he sits there at the transition which is what a priest is supposed to do right a priest is supposed to sit there between the chaos and the order and negotiate it and so samuel is that character so in in many ways he's a very uh, central character to the whole the whole narrative of the the Israelite history. Now you've done a really good job of telling us all about Samuel. <laughs> I think, you know, with that, we may be able to go into the story of Hannah and take our time and, yes. and have you share some of your personal experience with us. You know, I, I've known the story of Hannah since I was a kid, and I, I could even tell you all the details that, that I read this time. But, you know, Christopher, for some time, for some reason, reading through it this time, was a little more emotional for me than other times. I I just saw a lot of my experience in it. You know, my wife and I found out a year or so, year, year and a half after we were married, that it was really unlikely that we were going to conceive naturally and have kids. And so this was something that just really, <clears throat> really kind of ate at us for quite a long time. It was a difficult thing to deal with. And, and though we did have moments of, of consolation and, and hope, it was still this something that was always there, like difficult to, to come to terms with. <clears throat> but there was a, a time when we both kind of had this, Really, it was just a revelation about the fact that we would we would have a child one day, and we were even given a name to give this child, and we both felt like united in that, like we were both understood this as this revelation that we are going that was going to happen, and so <clears throat> not to get too much into you know the length of it, but. We, we adopted a couple of our, our children, and then finally the time came and we were in the position to be able to do IVF. And uh, we did. We went through that whole process. Long story short, there was, there was one, wasn't an embryo yet, but they call it a blastocyst. But anyway, one embryo, we could say, it came out and, and it was uh, male, and we knew that, it's, that the child's name was supposed to be Nathaniel. We had uh, picked that name, that that was the Hebrew name that means the gift of God. 
that was something we we both felt strongly about and then we had this this baby this child he's three years old now nathaniel anyway as i'm reading through this story of hannah i'm just kind of getting all those vibes again right (laughs) and so it's a it's a much more emotional personal story to me seeing all that she went through and and experienced at this time like just the the depth of of the feeling and and the sincerity really comes out in this story like a lot of other stories don't and so you know both Ruth and this story are really about this this deep mourning and and then being filled in in different ways right you know Naomi's mourning is and loss is filled in a very different way from Hannah's but it's God that's there with them to to do it. And so I just, in Hannah, I see a lot of beatitude stuff going on. It's a beautiful story. Hannah starts off, she's she's the favored wife. Like, what's her husband's name? Elkanah. He's, it's, it's interesting, you know, that these stories here, especially with Ruth and, and, and then with Hannah, the, the men are, are there in the story, but they are all secondary to the female characters. The female characters are the ones driving this story forward here. It's it's their faith and initiative that is is having the most impact here. As is often the case in the Bible. As is often the case. And they're just prominent in this and where it, in, in some other times, maybe there's a little bit of background stuff going on. But yeah, it's very prominent in these stories, um, especially. But uh, Hannah can't have children even though she's the favored wife, right? This is, this is Sarah. This is Rebecca, but you know, I guess to a lesser extent, it happens with Rebecca, right? This is Rachel. This is Samson's mother. can't have children, right? This is Elizabeth. When we get to the new Testament, the mother of John the Baptist, um, this is, it comes up over and over again in the Bible. And, and the idea is that this, this woman is oppressed in some way, right? She's not able to fulfill her her purpose. And <clears throat> here we have her, the other wife um, of Elkanah, who is referred to as Hannah's rival. It says her rival used to provoke her severely, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Ben, I remember me. I remember you telling me that you found in another translation adversary, and that's when I asked you yeah. if you knew the Hebrew behind it. And we went and did the word study, wondering if this was, you know, if it was Hasatan, right? And we found that it wasn't. And we found it's actually, yeah. yeah, we found actually that a a better translation may have been the second definition of rival wife. That's what we're dealing with here. Yeah, yeah. But this is referring to the other wife. They weren't friends. You know, this this kind of ev- evokes memories of Sarah and, and Hagar, right? How only flipped a little bit, you know. And we, we talked about how Hagar might have been a little uppity and that irritated Sarah and, and because of all that Sarah had went through. So understandably, you know, the way that Sarah acts totally makes sense in the situation in Hannah's situation she is just she's just mourning right she's she's weeping and she won't eat so these are both 
So not only is she, she, things are going out from her, right? She's weeping. So she's crying. She's expressing things, but she won't eat. So she's not taking in, right? This is a, a double process that is emptying her. And then we get to the point that says she's deeply distressed and prays to the Lord and wept bitterly. And it gives her her prayers. She promises, give me a child. And it says, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. Okay, so again, she's she's praying and weeping and not eating. And she gets to a point where she has expressed everything, right? She's, she's wept out all the tears. She's said everything she can say and no longer can she speak words. Everything is in her heart because she's just comes out as empty words because she has no more left in her, right? She's just, she's just moving her lips, but she's not actually speaking. And so she's been completely emptied here. It says, she says, I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. And what's sort of odd here, or ironic here is that Eli thinks she's drunk, right? So so she is really empty, but Eli thinks she's full of liquor. And so there's there's this sort of play on the imagery here of her emptiness where she has poured out, but then Eli believes she has been poured into, right? She's been drunken with wine and he and she explains to him no what her situation is. And so then she's promised a child and it says and the Lord remembered her and in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I have asked him of the Lord. And so the, the things that stood out to me that were both Hannah's condition of, of the emptying and, and the pouring out of her soul, and then her being filled, right? Now she has a child, she conceives, and so her womb is filled because of the Lord remembered her. Yeah, the Lord heard as the name the name Samuel means, Shemuel. Yeah. So the other phrase here, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. I think in my experience, you know, I always, I kind of always thought that the child that we eventually did have was going to come earlier. And then he did. And so, you know, it, things happen when they're supposed to happen, right? Indeed, every birth is a miracle. Well, Ben, with the with the overview you gave us of of Samuel, the story of Samuel, and another episode or two on Samuel coming up, do you think we can leave it at that for now? We probably could talk a little bit about what happens here with the character of Samuel, and I think we can tie that into the next episode because this is his calling as a prophet and and how that comes about. And there's, there's some, some interesting little things in there, but I think those could fit really well with the, the next episode that we do, even though I know they're included in this reading. I think, you know, in the interest of time, we, we can talk about those next time. Okay. Well, it's been good to have a conversation uh, and to be able to spend so much time on the stories of Ruth and Hannah. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson.